0: Welcome to Jib-Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're a regular listener, please do help spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and others in your networks. You can, of course, also find links to the materials discussed in all the episodes, including links to the impressive list of great reading recommendations that have been made by all of our guests on our website, jibjabpodcast.com. Our guest today is Leila Sadat, Professor of Law at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis and Special Advisor on Crimes Against Humanity to the ICC Prosecutor, as well as recent President of the American branch of the International Law Association, to name just a few of her accolades. She will in any event be well known to most of our listeners. In this episode, we focus on her work on both the ICC and on Crimes Against Humanity more broadly. And specifically the effort that she has been involved with for more than a decade now to establish a new convention on Crimes Against Humanity, which takes us into some unexpected areas such as the operation of the United Nations Sixth Committee, and some more obvious territory such as the relationship between genocide and crimes against humanity, how the obligation to prevent crimes against humanity might operate, and the issues of jurisdiction and immunities in international tribunals. So with that, let us get to the conversation. Well, Leila Sadat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this.
1: Thank you so much, Craig. It's really great to be with you today.
0: So as you know, uh, I've been asking all of my guests to say just a little bit, something about themselves, something personal, something uh, quirky that maybe some of your colleagues wouldn't know about you. So I know I've given you only about 30 seconds notice, but tell us something about yourself.
1: So in addition to being a law professor uh, with a long and interesting global career, I'm also a certified Kripalu yoga instructor at the 500 hour level of teacher training. And I did my yoga teacher training in residence at Kripalu um, Center in Massachusetts. And I go back almost every year to assist in other trainings. And uh, I teach from time to time and I practice almost every day. Wow. So that... I don't know if that's quirky, but it's certainly one of the the other passions in my life, other than my kids. That's interesting. So
0: our former Dean actually brought yoga to school and got students involved in yoga. So I don't know if you, you're doing that at WashU, but that's interesting.
1: I'm not, we don't really have that culture. I have donated yoga classes sometimes to the public interest auction. And I do teach in the community, but um, the law school. Has yet to be conquered by the forces of yoga.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So a challenge that remains for you.
1: Yeah, exactly. A kinder, gentler law school would be the objective.
0: So there are a whole host of aspects of your work that we could talk about, but I thought we'd focus primarily on your work on crimes against humanity, since that's a, a burning issue that's coming up as we're going to talk about. Uh, It's been a central focus of your work for over a decade, and as many listeners likely know, you also served as Special Advisor on Crimes Against Humanity to the Chief Prosecutor of the ICC since 2012, so that too is almost 10 years. So you're uniquely positioned to discuss both the work of the ICC itself and the efforts to develop a new Convention on the Prohibition and Prevention of Crimes Against Humanity. I thought perhaps we'd begin with your work for the ICC, a special advisor, and you could tell us a little bit about what that role entails and and why, frankly, the, the chief prosecutor needs a special advisor on crimes against humanity.
1: Thank you so much. So the ICC is another passion of mine. I was actually present at the Rome Diplomatic Conference in 1998, and I had chaired a committee for the International Law Association, American branch, on the ICC statute. And at the time, as part of my efforts as a young scholar to bring together some of the leading people in the United States, I met and convinced uh, Professor Sharif Basuni, um, the late Sharif Bassuni now to join my committee. And that began really a lifelong partnership of working with Sharif and with other global justice advocates and scholars around the world on issues relating to the International Criminal Court. And my first monograph was actually published on the ICC in 2000. It's now a classic text because it was actually written even before the court was established on the premises that the court would acquire the 60 ratifications necessary for the statute to enter into force. And that proved to be a a good prediction because the ICC will celebrate its 20th birthday this summer. So after I started the Crimes Against Humanity initiative in 2007, 2008, I'd already been working on ICC issues. i had been working on issues relating to crimes against humanity. And I had met uh, Prosecutor Ben Suda when she was actually the deputy prosecutor at the ICC on one of my many visits to the court. I used to take a group of students there every summer as part of some overseas teaching that I did. And I continued my research, obviously, on the work of the court and prosecutor Bensuda, and I, then deputy prosecutor, uh, developed a a relationship. And when she became chief prosecutor, she reached out and said, I would like you to become my special advisor on crimes against humanity. Of course, I was incredibly honored and, and, and floored a little bit because Recall that at the time, there were only seven of us. The current prosecutor has uh, engaged many more individuals as special advisors with various portfolios. But the prior practice under Prosecutor Ocampo and under Prosecutor Vetsuda was to have sort of a handful of people, you know, no more than maybe 10. And she chose seven. So she had nobody on genocide because the ICC really has not brought genocide cases. There's one indictment against Omar Al Bashir still not uh, actually activated, right? Um, But there's no other genocide case in the court at this point in time. There is now a special advisor on genocide with the idea that the court's work has been expanding and there are two situations on the docket where at least public accusations by politicians of genocide have been made. So that's bringing genocide a little bit more into the conversation. But at the time when I was appointed, it was really war crimes and Crimes Against Humanity. Those were really the bread and butter of the work of the court. And Crimes Against Humanity, as I learned after my appointment, and when I did the study, Crimes Against Humanity has emerged really front and center at the ICC in a way that it never had at the ad hoc tribunals. And that's because the ICC works in real time and you don't have to wait for an armed conflict to break out in order for Crimes Against Humanity law to apply. That's new. All the other situations we'd really had, even Rwanda, there was an armed conflict ongoing at the time of of the genocide, ultimately brought to an end by the RPF taking over uh, the country. And In all of the situations, such as the ICTY, the Nuremberg Tribunal, we had seen cases in which the crimes against humanity sort of represented the most egregious, inhumane activities that were ancillary to the war, whether it was the campaign of ethnic cleansing Mm -hmm. in the former Yugoslavia, in the Holocaust, of course, it was the extermination camps and the dehumanization of the Jewish people, as well as others. At the ICC, because we didn't have to wait for an armed conflict to happen, to be able to launch an investigation or preliminary examination, we started to see a lot of cases in which the only charges were crimes against humanity charges. And that's something that as I worked with the prosecutor, I emphasized both to the prosecutor and some of my published works that it's really important to get the delimitation between systematic violations of human rights law and systematic violations of human rights law that amount to attacks on a civilian population. Right. And where the court in its jurisprudence and where the office of the prosecutor is sort of the front line, in a sense, the prosecutor is the engine for that, is that is one of the trickiest, trickiest, trickiest things to, to think about is when is a state's repression of its people tantamount to a crime against humanity, and when does it, quote, only rise to a level of systematic violations of human rights? And that was not a line that we really had to draw in the other international criminal law tribunals, and that is a line that has been adjudicated in a variety of different contexts now, both at the preliminary examination stage and uh, in deciding to open investigations. We really haven't had jurisprudence on it in a trial, because interestingly, the cases that have gone to trial have really been cases where the crimes against humanity charges have accompanied the war crimes charges. They look much more traditional. So the Kenya case was an only crimes against humanity case. The Philippines, if it comes to trial, is an only crimes against humanity case. Venezuela is another one where you're seeing investigations for crimes against humanity, not war crimes. There are lots of other situations where the ICC is working mostly at the preliminary examination stage, but some have now kicked into the investigative phase on cases where only crimes against humanity are being charged. And so what's interesting, and and I'll stop in a minute, but what Prosecutor Khan has done, so I've retained my portfolio as the Crimes Against Humanity special advisor, and I'm grateful to Prosecutor Khan for that. But he's also appointed individuals with sort of more specialized areas. So there is now a special advisor on sexual slavery. There's one on persecution. There's one on uh, conflict-related sexual violence. So he's actually taken this sort of idea in the statute because there is a mandate in the statute that he shall have advisors on children on crimes of sexual violence. And he's taken that mandate and expanded it along with the other special advisors. So I think that's really quite interesting, showing that he's aware of the importance of this particular crime and that it is divided into many, many different subsets.
0: Right. So this really sort of leads into another sort of line of questions. And this relates to your other work, which is this effort to establish a new convention, on the punishment and prohibition of crimes against humanity. And you've been working on this, I think, since uh, 2010 or something. You published a a book on this in 2013. The ILC have now released draft articles that would be the basis or the the starting point for negotiations when the Sixth Committee is stalled, and we're going to get to that. But I guess before we dive into all of that work and the importance of it and so forth, I guess one of the skeptics' questions about this convention is why do we need a convention on the punishment and prohibition of crimes against humanity when the rome statute already exists the icc is addressing crimes against humanity not only or exclusively within armed conflict so the geneva conventions and the whole of body of ihl deals also with crimes against humanity albeit only within the context of armed conflict but the rome statute addresses it outside of the context of armed conflict so why do we need a separate convention at all
1: Yeah, great, great question, Craig. And one, actually my youngest daughter is 15 and a half and I started the project uh, essentially right after she was born. So they're about, about the same age, the Crimes Against Humanity initiative and, and my youngest daughter are sort of raising two children at the same time. (laughs) Um, and I hope as they get through their adolescence that they turn into right, lovely (laughs) full-fledged beings, particularly the Crimes Against Humanity convention that I have more worries about than I have for my offspring. the question came up in 2007 when we launched this, and the reason is that the ICC works as a vertical instrument only, and its job actually is to defer to states and for states to do most of the work themselves. Right. So the ICC takes on, we hope, the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole, and the ICC is extremely busy, but it's still holding very few trials. And given the increase in criminality in our world, unfortunately, we haven't seen a decrease we've seen since the ICC was founded, the situation in Syria, the situation in Bangladesh, Myanmar, which is now before the court, but only on crimes that float across the border. We are seeing the situation with the Uyghurs in China. We're now seeing Russia and Ukraine as a situation that began to develop in 2014 forward. So unfortunately we're seeing an increase, not a decrease in criminality globally in a, in the commission of atrocity crimes. Some areas are getting better. You got this peaceful now, thank goodness. And we can perhaps attribute some of that to ICC intervention But Glad- it's certain that we haven't solved the problem. Uh, that's that's the least one could say. And so the ICC with 18 judges, a relatively small budget for the coverage of the entire globe, uh, actually is only gonna be able to take a few cases in each one of the situations in its jurisdiction. And not every situation is justiciable because the ICC is a treaty court and it only has jurisdiction over states that have ratified the ICC treaty unless the Security Council refers. And we know the Security Council has come to an area of dysfunction, similar to the dysfunction we experienced during the Cold War. So the short answer there is in terms of capacity, we need additional capacity. And the ICC system is built for more capacity because it's a court of last, not first resort. The other thing about an interstate convention, and that's the key element here, this is not a treaty that creates a court. This is an interstate convention that asks states to, one, prevent, and two, to punish crimes against humanity, and in addition to ensure that as they're doing so, they have obligations of cooperation, that the crimes are considered international crimes, not transnational crimes. So this isn't a treaty on corruption or terrorism or cutting of submarine cables. That's another international criminal law treaty we have. This is a treaty involving a use Kogan's crime, a peremptory norm of international law. And we're asking every state in the world that ratifies it. Of course, states are sovereign and they can decide not to ratify it. But we're asking every state in the world to commit by ratifying this treaty to preventing crimes against humanity. And the the treaty will spell out some of the modalities involving prevention and to punish it. And so if you think about the way modern international law works, the other thing that's critical for this convention, which is in the International Law Commission draft and was in our draft, is jurisdiction in the ICJ as a dispute resolution mechanism doesn't exist at the ICC, right, when we have a case such as Russia and Ukraine, which the Ukrainians are trying to wedge into the Genocide Convention in order to plead their case before the International Court of Justice, so much easier to come in on a crimes against humanity allegation, because the ICC prosecutor had already said in a preliminary examination report that there was a reasonable basis to believe crimes against humanity were being committed on the territory of Ukraine. And that was even prior to the February invasion. So the thing that an interstate treaty does is it just provides a much more serious capacity building, prevention focus. There could be a monitoring mechanism where you'd actually have like the torture committee or the CERD committee. You'd actually have a body looking at the commission of crimes against humanity or allegations with respect to that in real time and able to respond. And so you're building capacity, you're building sort of muscle, if you like. Right now we have a pretty anemic prohibition on probably the most prevalent and one of the most serious atrocity crimes out there. And so it's a huge gap actually. And the nice thing about having the Rome Statute negotiated is 165 states already debated the definition. That was always the argument. We can't do it because we don't know how to define it. Well, it's been defined now. And it's been defined in a treaty that 125 states, more or less, sometimes they ratify and then withdraw. Some states have filed like Ukraine has a declaration, but not a ratification. But more or less about 125 states have accepted this definition. And even states like the United States that didn't join the Rome statute didn't disagree with the definition at Rome. That was never an issue for the US delegation. So we have a building block and we just need a lot more capacity. And not having it, but having the Genocide Convention, which we know we can't use very often because it's not very helpful as a tool of criminal law. And we have the Geneva Conventions, but we have No Crimes Against Humanity Treaty, which was after all the key incrimination of the Nazis at Nuremberg for the Holocaust. So, The words never again really don't mean much if you're not willing to give them actual content, and this is an effort to give them juridical content.
0: All right. So we'll post a a link on the website to a recent short essay that you wrote that sort of brings us up to speed on the process that brings us to today. But part of that, of course, is the ILC draft articles that were released or published in 2019. Then the six Committee negotiations bogged down because of the pandemic initially. But as you point out in the paper in late 2021, the six Committee meets again and again, fails to move the process forward. So maybe you can talk a little bit about why it is that this is bogged down in the Sixth Committee and maybe how you think we might resolve that
1: stalemate. How oh, we can unstick it. To use a very non-technical term. So in 2019, I was actually at the United Nations when the Sixth Committee met and took up the second reading of the International Law Commission draft. And maybe let me back up a tiny bit to just give sort of the history of how the International Law Commission came to choose this as a topic and ultimately sure. produce its own fantastic draft. So one of the things that the initiative that I started at Washington University in St. Louis did was we convened a series of expert meetings in order to both answer the skeptics' questions, why do this? And then it, assuming we could convince enough skeptics that it was worth doing, we decided to actually do it and produce a draft treaty, in which case the question was: well, what should be in the draft treaty? How should it be formulated? What kind of provisions should it have? And How can we we modernize it so that it's a modern atrocity crime prevention treaty uh, as opposed to the older conventions like the Geneva and the genocide conventions? So Professor Sean Murphy came to one of our meetings at the Brookings Institution and Professor Murphy was subsequently elected to the International Law Commission. So if you believe in fate, that was certainly (laughs) a fateful moment. That was a positive development for our project because I'm not sure he would have heard of it otherwise. And so he actually learned of it at our Brookings Institution meeting in 2010. And once elected to the commission, actually ran on a campaign to make this part of the work he would do at the commission. So states were aware. This isn't as if uh, all of a sudden he got there and said, oh, I'm becoming a crimes against humanity lawyer. States were quite aware that this was something percolating. And essentially voted with their feet, right? Because he was elected to the commission. He proposed the topic, the commission accepted the topic. And then in partnership with the Harris Institute of which I was the director at that time, the Harris Institute held a conference in Geneva and we invited members of the commission to come civil society, academic experts, and they moved it from their long-term program of work to the development actually of draft articles that could be used as the basis for a convention. And I have to say the work was done absolutely beautifully by the commission. They worked over a series of years, drafting a few articles a year, accompanied by very, very comprehensive reports produced by Professor Murphy. They did a, a terrific job, really, of developing a set of fairly de minimis, but nonetheless complete draft articles that states could then take forward and use as the basis to begin negotiations. And the way the commission works, every year the report is published, every year the sixth committee takes it up, it's presented to the general assembly, states have an opportunity to comment, and then they go back to Geneva the next year and continue their work. So this happened over a series of years. The first reading, that is the first complete set of draft articles, was issued in 2017. States then had a year to comment. Comments came in in 2018. And in 2019, the commission finalized the work and produced the text that we now have sitting stuck in the United Nations General Assembly. So it's been a long and iterative process. If one thinks about the origin of our little tiny group with our seven steering committee members that included, of course, Professor Bassiuni and Richard Goldstone and Bill Chavis and Christine von and others, to expanding to a set of international experts all over the world. And we ultimately had our proposed treaty translated into nine languages. It's available on the Harris Institute website. And then it moves into the International Law Commission, which is now an official body, tasked under Article 13 of the Charter by the General Assembly with the progressive development and codification of international law. And that's a very solemn step to go from sort of this academic outsider project to now an insider project. 2019, I'm there. Everybody's excited. (laughs) The Austrian delegation offers to host the diplomatic conference in Vienna or the negotiation of of this treaty, we're all excited, everybody has shivers. And then a couple of states say, no. And it wasn't a large number. If you look at the Harris Institute website, every year I've had my students actually collating all the statements of government and coding them to say positive, negative, neutral. It's a little tricky, we have to make fine distinctions, but roughly speaking, we're now at the point that 80, out of 90 interventions in the sixth committee in 2021, were either overwhelmingly positive or fine with a process to take forward discussion of the draft. And only a handful of states said no. And so your question, you'd be scratching your head saying, so why isn't this moving forward? And the answer, which I've learned, I was not an expert in U.S. procedure prior to this process. The answer is the sixth committee has a tradition of working on the basis of consensus. Which means that essentially the veto gets imported from the Security Council to the Sixth Committee. But there are even more states with a veto because they can block forward action simply by refusing to agree to the creation. Last year, the argument was let's create an ad hoc committee to study the commission's work, make recommendations, and see how we can enact its recommendation. And A handful of states said no, even to a working group or ad hoc committee to take up the process of substantive discussion of the draft articles. And it's probably unsurprising that the two states leading that opposition were the Russian Federation and China. And that's why in some of the articles on just security, because just security did a whole series on this last fall, you'll see that we really feel it's almost as if the veto got imported from the security council to the general assembly through this six committee tradition of consensus. And so now I think what states wishing to go forward, which is the overwhelming majority of states, because remember the commission too, has very broad regional distribution. Geographic distribution is required for the commission. So there's right. a Russian member, There's a, there's been a US member. This last time the US member didn't get elected. There have been members from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East, from Latin America. So this isn't a US project, right? Uh, right? Which is important to remember. And so the question is now, I'm actually working with states and civil society brainstorming how we can come up with creative ways to respect the six committees tradition, but at the same time, actually produce something out of this now 15-year-long odyssey to develop this new convention, which is stuck because of the opposition of two, three states.
0: And so, I mean, mindful that this is a podcast on the laws of armed conflict and use of force and don't necessarily want to go down the rabbit hole of UN procedure, but why is it that the Sixth Committee, which I understand is the the committee of the General Assembly that deals with legal matters, why is it that it has to go through the sixth committee in order to establish, for example, a negotiating convention hosted by Austria.
1: Yeah, it's tradition. The International Law Commission, and and I agree with you. I, I just want to talk about crimes against humanity, but I've had to really dig into the nuances of U.S. procedure because this is where we are now. So the first committee, for example, it took up the Landmines Treaty. It takes up the Treaty for, for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons because that's what it deals with. The third committee actually dealt with, which is human rights and humanitarian issue, got the torture and the apartheid convention done. The sixth committee did issue, sort of did take up the ILC project on the International Criminal Court. The sixth committee is the legal committee and traditionally the products of the International Law Commission go to the sixth committee. That said, if tradition isn't working, Part of our job this summer is to think a little bit outside the box and say, well, maybe this should have gone to the third committee or maybe it should just go to the plenary and the General Assembly and just get voted up or down. Right. Because it's the refusal to vote, not the capability of the delegates in the sixth committee at all. It's the refusal to vote that is the obstacle here. And the sixth committee is the only committee that has this so-called consensus rule. None of the other committees do and the general assembly plenary doesn't. Everything is put to a vote. So when you ask why does the sixth committee do this, the tradition, if you, you hear from some people say, well, but the sixth committee deals with legal issues and so you need consensus, right? Because it's about the development of customary international law. Except here, that's not what's happening. This is about creating a committee to debate the possibility of a new treaty that states in their sovereign capacity can join or not join so there's nothing about creating customary international law happening here this is about a procedural obstacle and it could be shifted to the agenda of the general assembly or the agenda of the third committee if the sixth committee proves insurmountable the sixth committee has voted on occasion it has voted on the jurisdictional immunities treaty it voted on the Declaration on Human Cloning in 2005. It voted on the U.N Watercourses Convention. And what's interesting is consensus doesn't necessarily produce better documents, because many of the things that happen by consensus never get adopted by state. Right. And conversely, many treaties that are produced by voting are wildly successful. So, I think voting really ought to be the order of the day. And this six committee practice is an anomaly. So, I know your listeners want to hear more about what is a crime against humanity and and why we need this treaty. But it is interesting to see how ancillary bodies of law, like you had practice and procedure and traditional ways of doing things, can slow things down. I remember, and I'll just end this little Point with this. I remember Shri Bassuni, may he rest in peace, telling me, Layla, the hard part is not going to be drafting the treaty. It's going to be getting it adopted. That is really going to be the hard part of this work. And indeed, we had a complete text from our group in 2010, a complete text from the international law. Commission in 2019, and we're still sitting in the sixth committee, which is now scheduled to meet on October 10th, I believe 2022, in a very short session, and hoping that over the summer we can make some progress to take this forward.
0: Well, we look forward to blog posts from you, sort of bringing us up to date as as you go through the brainstorming uh, process. But the
1: blog posts may get be less temperate than they were last year. (laughs) There's not more progress. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier, and uh, just to bring this back to the the relationship between this potential convention, the Genocide Convention, the, the Rome Statute. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, for example, the G- Genocide Convention is not as helpful from a international criminal law perspective and that it's harder to bring charges under the Genocide Convention. Perhaps you can just explain it, particularly for like the students out there or those who are not in, in the weeds of this, why that is, and also why, I guess, we typically see crimes against humanity being relegated to lower status, right? You know, people talk about genocide as being the crime of crimes and in the context of the current conflict in Ukraine, you know, the lay public, the media are fixated on, is there a genocide happening and completely seem to ignore that there, regardless of whether there's a genocide, there are clearly crimes against humanity, but nobody seems to pay attention to that. And so what do we make of that relationship? And what does that say about, in fact, the importance of the convention that you're working for?
1: Well, let me take the last question first, right, which is in my public outreach on Ukraine, I kept telling, you know, NPR the New York times, can we talk about crimes against humanity? And they didn't want to, they wanted to talk. they went right from war crimes to genocide. And so I think we can literally visibly see that not having a treaty not having the name be an established, well-respected name, they can't pull it up, right? So the New York Times report is, you're terrific. They're actually, we're having debates about the, the proportionality requirement, and I'm talking to them about protocol one, and we're pulling it up. As we talk about it, I say, look at this article and look at this. You can't do that with crimes against humanity now. There's literally no treaty there. There's a blank. And so they jumped to genocide and genocide. Also, one has to say it's a a simpler name. It's easier to say Lemkin was a linguistic genius. Uh, If he was alive today, I'd probably ask for his advice on how can we rename crimes against (laughs) humanity so that journalists can use it more effectively. But you know, crimes against humanity really is the crime of crimes. Genocide is a species of crimes against humanity. And the reason it's so difficult to use the genocide convention is it takes a subset of crimes against humanity, which is the intentional destruction of a specific group, limited to four groups, religious, national, ethnic, um, racial. And it, says only those groups can be the victim of a genocide. And you have to show the specific intent of the perpetrator not just to want to harass those groups or persecute them or ethnically cleanse them, right? Drive them off their land and make them go live somewhere else. You have to show they wanted to actually physically exterminate them. Now, I'm not sure that that is required by the text of the genocide convention, I'm one of those scholars that has never really loved the jurisprudence of the the Yugoslavia Tribunal, which found in the latest decision in Milotic that genocide wasn't committed in Bosnia outside of Srebrenica. I I think that's not a tenable result, but I'm not one of the judges of the ICTY, and the judges have spoken, and the ICC judges are certainly going to follow that jurisprudence. And so that means that outside of a true Holocaust, where you have a leader who actually publicly states, I'm going to exterminate these individuals that create a whole system to do so, and massive casualties. Rwanda is another case where I think you clearly had evidence of exterminatory intent and the acts that accompanied it. It's going to be very rare to show that as a criminal law tool where you have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. If there's any other explanation, the courts are going to acquit on counts of genocide. That's We've seen that over and over again. So working for the prosecutor, I'm unlikely to tell Prosecutor Khan, oh yeah, I think he should go with the genocide charges there because we know that you need mountains of evidence. And even at the Yugoslavia Tribunal in the Jalicic case, where he was called the Serb Adolf and said, Awful things about Bosniaks and how they should be killed. And he was acquitted on genocide charges, right? So we just know that genocide is going to require a mountain of evidence. And we're very unlikely to bring those charges unless we have a sort of Rwanda or a Holocaust type situation. So the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty is really important to fill the gap. The persecution part of Crimes Against Humanity fills the gap in terms of the groups protected. So during the negotiation of the Genocide Convention, they leave out social or political groups. Of course, the Soviets are there, the United States (laughs) is there, lots of states are there worried about this language in the Genocide Convention and excluded any attacks on social or political groups. And we even get fights about what is a racial group, what is a national group, what is an ethnic group. So the genocide convention has buried within it a lot of language that is very difficult for a criminal lawyer to use effectively. And even at the interstate level in Bosnia versus Serbia, the ICJ followed the ICTY and said outside of Srebrenica, no genocide had actually been committed, but there was a failure to prevent genocide. And so one of the things that the proposed Crimes Against Humanity Treaty does is it builds upon that language in Bosnia versus Serbia to say the duty of prevention is critical. And where there is evidence of a serious risk that crimes against humanity will be or are being committed, then states have an obligation to act. And that is a very important duty of prevention, and is something that if we can get crimes against humanity uh, enacted as a treaty, I think will really help with the prevention. And and I and I have to say, I mean, just add one thing: it's not about deterrence. When we talk about deterrence in criminal law, we're really saying, does punishing some people mean that others won't commit the crimes? Of course, we hope that will happen if we have enough international criminal law prosecutions. But here we're talking about something different, which is prevention at the state responsibility level, where states have obligations to act. And because they're so nervous about calling things genocide, we want to allow for crimes against humanity to be there as this new window of prevention that can happen before an atrocity cascade really spins out of control.
0: So that leads nicely into another question. There are some criticisms of the establishment of this extraterritorial obligation with respect to genocide in particular. But this proposed convention would establish an extraterritorial obligation to prevent crimes against humanity. And as you say, there is this reluctance even to acknowledge that genocide is occurring precisely because acknowledging it is going to trigger the extraterritorial obligation. And, you know, if you're Canada, then maybe that doesn't matter. But if you're the United States and you have the ability to prevent a genocide in Rwanda, you get nervous about acknowledging that there's a genocide occurring in Rwanda because that triggers an obligation. So I guess there is that criticism out there. And isn't that criticism going to then Apply equally to a convention that now creates an obligation to prevent crimes against humanity, which, as you have pointed out, is a much broader, much more easily established offense or violation of international law than genocide.
1: One of the things, when you look in the paragraphs of Bosnia uh, versus Serbia, one of the things they are very careful to note is that any obligation of prevention has to be based upon actual knowledge and has to be consistent with the United Nations Charter. So nobody's suggesting, because R2P doesn't even suggest this, that if one is alerted to a potential genocide, that the obligation of prevention requires sending in the troops, right? So it's not a military obligation of prevention. Now that does suggest that, well, what is it then, right? If you're not actually gonna fly your troops in there, What it might mean is that you did everything you could to get the UN Security Council to agree to authorize admission. It might involve economic sanctions. It might involve diplomacy. It might involve lots of different modalities that can be used consistent with the charter because it doesn't mean invade a country and engage in humanitarian intervention in violation of international law. Right. And so I think one has to separate out the obligations of prevention are multitudinous, are manifold. In Bosnia versus Serbia, what the ICJ said was that because Serbia had actual knowledge and the power to influence the army of the Republic of Serbska, That there had been a failure to prevent. Now, many people, again, didn't like that parsing. They didn't like the fact, well, if there was that much knowledge and a power to prevent, then aren't they complicit in the commission of the genocide? And so there were many people that agreed with the dissent in that case, saying the court should have gone further and should have actually found Serbia responsible for the genocide, not just responsible for failure to prevent. But in that case, limiting it to the facts of that case, there was actual knowledge and the capacity to influence. So I think that while, of course, one can be concerned that these prevention obligations would be extremely broad, we haven't seen that in practice. In practice, we've seen that when international courts and tribunals are asked to look at those issues, they construe very, very narrowly. Right.
0: I mean, just playing that out. If we think about, for example, some of the cases that involve crimes against humanity that are currently being investigated or or, uh, on the docket of the ICC, so the Philippines, Venezuela, how would the obligation to prevent play out in relation to, for example, the circumstances in Venezuela?
1: You know, I think that in Venezuela, it's very difficult because you have a government in charge that has taken measures against its own people in a way that has allegedly, and then again, this is a case under investigation by the ICC. So I'm commenting only in my personal capacity with respect to information that's public, right? but that is a government that has allegedly taken measures that if proven could give a reasonable basis to believe that crimes against humanity have been committed against the people of Venezuela. And so in terms of responsibility to prevent, there is a responsibility, and I think many states have tried to exercise that responsibility by engaging in conversations, by cutting off certain access to funds. The United States actually indicted the entire regime not on charges of crimes against humanity because we don't have a crimes against humanity statute in the United States, although Senator Durbin is introducing one, I understand but on charges of corruption and money laundering and violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And so that's part of it. When you're thinking about tools that states use on an interstate basis, to get at criminality in one state that's spilling over the borders into others or that are benefiting the individuals in that state who are still traveling freely and not with any concern to the fact that they may be engaging in the Commission of International Crimes in their their own state. Uh, Not having national legislation that allows you to investigate and potentially indict and arrest individuals accused of those crimes is a huge gap. So again, you know, Sharif used to to use the image of the Lilliputians trying to tie down Gulliver. No one of these tools is going to actually work on its own. The ICC alone is insufficient. Crimes Against Humanity Treaty is insufficient. But the ICC plus states actually ratifying a treaty and then incorporating Crimes Against Humanity into their national legislation with the tools to extradite to cooperate, to render mutual legal assistance, just, it's another little string, tying down the Gulliver of impunity. And each one of those things contributes to a much more peaceful world, we hope.
0: So initially, we we just discussed in our previous episode with the former president of the ICC is this issue of both jurisdiction and immunities of international tribunals. And you may. I'm sure have been following this debate that has exploded over what level of immunity Russian officials might enjoy in a hybrid tribunal or the various different forms of tribunal that have been mooted for trying the crime of aggression with respect to the invasion of of Ukraine. And so I'm wondering, and I know from some of your writing on the ICC, you have particular views on whether or to what extent the jurisdiction of the ICC can be understood as having been delegated and what immunities may apply. So I'm curious how you view this current debate over, and I, we don't need to get into the whole issue of crime of aggression, but how do you see immunities playing out in respect of crimes against humanity, particularly, as you just said, if, if we're looking to delegate to state tribunals through universal jurisdiction, the obligation to prosecute uh, those who have committed crimes against humanity, how are immunities going to play out in that context? And how is that going to differ, for example, from the greater powers of prosecuting those people at the ICC?
1: Oh, Craig, you, you walked right into my most recent manuscript. Oh, uh, there we go. uh, The jurisdiction, understanding the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Well. The former president of the ICT and I don't agree on everything, but we do agree on the correctness of the decision in the Al Bashir case, where I think the appeals chamber got it right that there is no immunity before the ICC with respect to international crimes, and that's really important to note that international crimes are crimes created by the international community that are subject to a. Sp- separate autonomous regime when international courts are applying them, enforcing them, adjudicating them. And so I do think that the ICC appeals chamber got it absolutely right in the Al-Bashir case. Now, national courts are very, very different interstate proceedings. You're gonna have immunities. That's the rule. Whether it should be the rule or not, it is the rule that sitting heads of state, sitting foreign ministers, sitting heads of the right, that the the Troika are immune from jurisdiction before national courts. And that is the Eurodia case. That is the current understanding of immunity. It's not an immunity ratione materiae. That is, they still may have committed those crimes. And once they leave office, I do believe they can be prosecuted for their those crimes. There is a debate on that. One would have thought perhaps the Pinochet case would have set that debate aside, but that debate is resurging. It's resurging at the International Law Commission where there were seven members of the commission that actually voted against that principle. I was pretty shocked by that. And the special rapporteur for that particular project was not reelected to the commission this year when Hmm. she ran. So I don't know what's going to happen with the ILC project on immunities from foreign criminal jurisdiction. But I do think it's fairly clear that for international crimes, there is no immunity before international courts. The ICC is indisputably an international court. And I'm sure what the president was talking about was how do you create, if you do decide to create a special tribunal for the crime of aggression, how do you make sure that that Court is international enough that there would be no immunity right. and how do you make sure that that tribunal appears legitimate and not sort of a you know 21st century trial of the Kaiser kind of an event? The other thing that is interesting jurisprudentially is the Albashir case did involve a Security Council referral. We know that this was not going to by definition have a Security Council referral because Russian Federation will veto any effort and I'm sure China would probably object as well. So this will be more a Nuremberg style in the sense that if it's created by treaty, if it's created by General Assembly resolution, if it's Special Corpus Sierra Leone style where it's a hybrid, where Ukraine and the United Nations General Assembly sort of enter into this agreement. I think there are questions about how to make sure it has enough indicia of internationalness that there is no immunity before it. And that is tricky with the vetoes of the security council because we can't use the ICTY or ICTR models where you had a security council resolution. So then we have to go back to general principles of international law and international criminal law and for that, I think they were it developed during the interwar period between World War I and World War II, and then given effectivity by the Nuremberg Tribunal, passed into the corpus of international law, and uh, now are being put to the test, if you like. So it's it's a very tricky issue, but I agree with the president on on this particular point. I think there can be no immunity for the commission of international crimes before an international court.
0: Well, we look forward to your manuscripts.
1: <laughs> it's being workshopped this weekend. I'm sure I'll have lots of criticism. And if I could just add one point about the delegated jurisdiction, that's really a non-technical use of the word delegation. It's fine to talk about delegation in a non-technical sense. The ICC gets delegated jurisdiction, delegated to, by states. The more proper locution would be to say states confer Upon the ICC, where the ICC accepts jurisdiction conferred. Because if you think about it, and this is the point of my upcoming manuscript look at discussions of jurisdiction at the ICJ, at the WTO at the ITLOS Tribunal, before the European Court of Human Rights, before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, there's no argument being made that states are somehow delegating to those courts, some little piece of their own jurisdiction and thereby creating some new entity that's actually less than the sum of its parts because the most extreme form of delegation theory says that Palestine can't even delegate criminal jurisdiction to the ICC because it doesn't have jurisdiction itself. Right. And so the, the theory in that case is that you'd have to look at all of the national jurisdictions of 193 states in order to figure out what the ICC's got in a particular case. That's a completely unworkable theory. Instead, what we know is we actually create international courts to do things states cannot do themselves. The ICJ hears interstate disputes. States can't do that in their national courts, right? The European Court of Human Rights hears cases where an individual is protesting that its state has violated the convention in some way. And the rights that the the individual is petitioning about often don't even exist in the national constitution. So, in fact, the delegation theory has international law completely upside down. It's a completely wrong theory, actually, as a conceptual theory to constrain the jurisdiction of the ICC. And we don't see it being used, really, in any other area of international law. And it's, in a sense, a clever I don't want to use the word manipulation because that implies intent, but it's a it's a clever play on words Right. that sort of comes from a U.S. idea about, oh, the states came together and they created the federal government and they gave it a constitution of limited powers. That's not what's happening here. This is an international court exercising jurisdiction over international crimes operating in an autonomous sphere of international law and exercising the use punende of the entire international legal system. So that's what my manuscript is going to say, but it's going to take me 25,000 words to prove it, I think.
0: <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, we really do look forward to this. I mean, this the, the debate surrounding what is going on in Ukraine, I think, has really inflamed a lot of interest in both jurisdiction and immunities and the relationship between the two. So I, I think it's it's timely... Your manuscript is going to hit the market at a timely time. So,
1: Yes, actually, I started working on it in 2020 when I was literally spitting into the wind on this issue, at least in the United States and in some other borders, because this was kind of the theory of the day, this delegation idea. And there was a huge uproar about the Palestine case and the Afghanistan situation. And the U.S. was sanctioning the prosecutor, right? I couldn't even work for my prosecutor for a year because of the U.S. sanctions. And so now I think the Ukraine situation has caused folks in the United States and elsewhere to hit the pause button on the, the ramifications of that delegation theory and recognizing it, it's just a bad way to construct an effective international legal order and not consistent with general principles of international law. So that's really, I'm trying to recenter the ICL debate that was happening sort of in a teacup that against the larger picture of the international legal system as a whole. So I'm going to get comments on the unfinished manuscript this weekend, and we'll see what my colleagues think of it now.
0: Interesting. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about that yeah. when it's, it's close to coming out.
1: Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that.
0: Well, I'm very mindful of, of your time and I know you're, you're, as you said, you're heading off to, to these series of workshops and conferences. But before I let you go, I always ask my guests to recommend three readings, books, Mm -hmm. articles, um, ideally something related to this topic, but not necessarily, and something that you think maybe hasn't got as much attention as it might deserve.
1: Well, so one of my favorite books is Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro's The Internationalist. I just think that is a brilliant piece of scholarship. I uh, actually sometimes give it to my students as a reward for getting the best grade in my international law exam. And I think it marries sort of international law theory with the story of the Kellogg-Briand Pact mm-hmm. and how law can make a difference. So I actually love that book. My second favorite book in my field is Philippe Sands' East West <clears throat> The story of crimes against humanity and genocide again it's kind of a page turner it's got a lot of relevant historical narrative for our times reading it during the era of america first and the trump administration from 2016 to 2020 was really illuminating about how many of the arguments in the 1920s, in the 1930s, in the 1940s were being re-evoked in 2016, 2017, 2018. And it's also just a great human story about how individuals matter. Right. So you can see my theme here, the internationalist is why law matters. East West Street is why people matter, why Lenkin and his devotion to the crime of genocide and getting a treaty was important. And Lauterpacht, who also was coming from the same city of Lviv, again in the news now with the invasion of Ukraine, they were both studying at the same institution in Lviv and traveled the world to escape the Holocaust. Lauterpacht goes to London and Lemkin comes to the United States and end up together at Nuremberg advising different teams <laughs> um, and getting their concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide into the Nuremberg tribunals. You can see, though, that Lemkin was ultimately more successful in some ways because genocide has had more legs than crimes against humanity. So I'm sort of calling upon the ghost of <laughs> Herr Lauterbach to help me with this treaty. And then finally, I would say the other area I work in, which may, it's not relating to your podcast, but I work in the area of gun violence and human <laughs> rights. And I have a whole project on how the United States is not in compliance with its treaty obligations and customary international law in refusing to address the problem of gun violence. And my latest article is actually called Torture in Our Schools, which accuses the United States of committing ill treatment against America's school children in violation of the torture convention. And it's coming out in the Harvard Law Review Forum in about a week. And one of the books that really influenced me in my thinking about the second amendment, the racial dimensions of the amendment, the history amendment is called The Second. And it's a terrific book that I've been reading on sort of the racial history of the second amendment and so that's another area which i think international law can bring a new perspective to a problem that's really plaguing the united states right now
0: fascinating that couldn't be more timely as well well Layla, thank you so much for making time for this and for for your insights i mean i know our listeners will find this all really fascinating
1: Thank you. And thank you for having me on. I'm going to follow you and listen to all your podcasts because it's really great work that you're doing, Craig. And I know it's super time consuming. So thank you very, very much for all of your work and your leadership in the field.
0: Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab: the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact information is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word, share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. There's actually a blurb on the website now on how to cite podcasts properly in your scholarship. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at jibjabpodcast for updates on the upcoming episodes, This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.